Welcome. This podcast is an exploration into being human and what's possible when there's less attention on the noise in our heads. Warning. While listening to this broadcast, you may experience moments of deep peace, sighs of relief, personal insights, or long stretches of dead air. Do not be afraid. This is normal. Under the Noise with Wynne Morgan and Kate Roberts. Welcome to this week's episode of Under the Noise with me, Wynne Morgan, and my co-host here, Kate Roberts. Hi, Kate. Hi, Wynne. And today we're delighted to be sharing with you the rather wonderful um, Bill Pettit. And I'll just say a little bit about Bill. I first met Dr. Bill Pettit in Seattle in February of 2013. Having messaged him, I think, or I was just about to message him to ask for some help with a specific project. And in the project, I was asked to, in order to qualify, to succeed for the certification. In the project, I needed a mentor. Mm. So I know who I'll ask. I'll ask Bill Pettit. This is right up his street. And I had the most amazing reply back, which was, when... The only thing you need is your inner wisdom. And if you don't know what that is, read The Missing Link by Sydney Banks. Now, at the time, and Bill, I remember telling you the story again in Romania a few years ago at a conference. At the time, that was the least helpful reply that I could have hoped for. And in the long term, it's been the most serving thing mm. that that you replied because it did really teach me a lot about how we work as human beings and what Sydney Banks in that book, The Missing Link, which it's still the only book I always keep at my desk here in my mm -hmm. office at home. Mm -hmm. A lot of truth about who I am and who we all are underneath the noise and underneath the, the surface of what we've made up about ourselves. So, Bill, the one question that we love to ask our guests at the beginning is how they would introduce themselves to someone who'd never heard of them before. Mm. So I know we put you on the spot there, but no, how would you no, answer that it's okay. question? It's okay. Mm. Um, I would probably say, you know, that I'm a human being who's... Um, I think always wanted to be a healer, but came to realize that I, you know, it sounds like a cliche that I, charity starts at home, that I needed to, to uh, be healed inside myself first. Mm -hmm. And like Mr. Banks says that you can only, only give what you have. It's all we can give. You know, he, he says it very concretely. If I, if I just have $5, that's all I can give you. If I have $1, I can give you that. So I think I've, I've been a, on a journey, um, lifelong journey. Um, you know, I, I'm a retired, in, in the world of form, I'm a retired clinical psychiatrist and over 50 years as a physician. I went to my 50-year reunion from medical school, which was interesting. It's a good thing they had name tags because many of those people I hadn't seen for 50 years, a few of them I had other than. So, but I'm a student, I'm a student and a sharer of um, these three universal principles. I don't claim to be a teacher. I don't think you can teach something that people already know. You can, you know, I love the fact that the, the, the Latin root for uh, educate is to draw out. You can't draw out something unless it's already in there. So I'm a, a, a student and a sharer of the, and a medical, uh, and a mental health educator, I guess. Yeah. Try, trying to be in a state of mind where I can give and receive love freely and, um, and do the next right thing, whatever that is, whether it's hard or not. I don't know. That's what comes to mind. Cool. Lovely. Thanks. 
And in that 50 years, what's changed as a physician in the way that you see people and have been working with them? Well, you know, it changed abruptly on April Fool's Day, 1983, <laughs> when I met Sid Banks. <laughs> I had met George, you know, on January 1st uh, uh, of, of that year. And then we had met in a little hotel on Hotel Mac. I remember driving across San, seeing San Quentin Prison on the way there because I was living out there working for LifeSpring, which was a, which was kind of like Avis is to Hertz. Uh, LifeSpring was to Est in the forum. Right? And, uh, and that's a whole long story of both those people, you know, worked with the same company initially. Um, and so I met George and, and I, I knew he knew something that I didn't know. And when he invited me to come and listen to, to, um, uh, Sid Banks, uh, and there was going to be about 250 people in at a hotel in San Francisco, and starting on Friday evening, April Fool's Day, 1983. And and I sat there in that audience, um, and within 30 minutes, I uh, knew that this man knew at least a thousand times more about mental health than I did. And more than any of the six psychiatrists that I'd seen as I'd gone in and out of clinical depression for 20 years. And I felt about a 300 pound weight come off my chest. Mm. And I felt, I realized I was not broken, had nothing lacking. And I realized that my depression had not been coming from my genes or my heredity uh, or my upbringing or the two or three things that I wished hadn't happened in my life. It came from what I was doing moment to moment with my thinking. And that <laughs> metaphorically my depression or my right-sided headache was being initiated by me six to nine hours a day by my innocent misuse of these three universal gifts of mind, thought, and consciousness. And some people, when they say, God, that must have been really horrible to realize you've been doing that to yourself. I said, are you kidding me? It was the most exciting thing I ever learned in my life. Because I thought my depression was coming from things that I had no control over. Other people, circumstances, what other people said, what other people did. So to see that I was the incrementally i didn't i didn't see it as clearly as i see it now but i got a, a big clue that um i may have had a pile of exceptions initially but i i i saw that that i was the one that had been creating my stress and my depression and that was exciting because if i'm the one that's doing this i might be able to learn how to do this less softer less frequent, <laughs> et cetera. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that, that's, yeah. I think so. Huh. There, there's a question that I would have if I didn't know you and, and hadn't had some exposure to what you've been talking about, but I'd love to hear your words for in more depth and you've highlighted so far about the three universal principles that you've just mentioned. Okay. You know, it's interesting. The, um, the enlightened gardener. And the reason I'm going to show this is that I, I've read this book many times over the last 20 years. I saw this for the first time on the first Opposite the first page of the book, where opposite where it says chapter one, a conference in England, there's a little thing called a note to the reader. Have you ever seen that when? Not, not that I recall right now, embarrassingly, no. No, no. Well, don't be, I mean, join the club. I mean, 20 years. So I'm doing this course, and this is the second time I've done the course in a year. Yeah. A note to the reader. In this simple book, the author endeavors to explain in his own unique way 
the connection between our spiritual nature and our psychological nature. I've never seen that. I've never seen that. 20 years. Never saw it. Sure, it hasn't been added. It's been there. So to me, first of all, I go back briefly to when Sid and, and you know David Banks was there when it happened at the end of his three days of being awake for three days. And then his um, his um, <laughs> his mother-in-law standing over him saying, what's so funny, Mr. Banks? Because he started laughing when he saw what they were doing with their thinking. And he stood up to try to explain and he was enveloped by this white light and this buzzing sound, right? Which just lasted for a few seconds. But at the end of that, he, he said, and I don't know that uh, I hear a lot of people talk about a very, what I think a very superficial understanding of these principles. Because what Mr. Banks said was when he came out of it, he asked his wife, he said, he said, I've seen, I'm home free. I've conquered this world. I've seen what people call God is. I've seen what life is. And I've seen how the two are connected. Pardon me? <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> right? And, and he had the gall to say to his wife, do you, do you know what this means? And of course, she later said her first thought was, yeah, he's, he's gone loony on me, right? But at the same time, he, she said, I never saw Sid's eyes sparkle, his face. I'd never seen the serenity that I was witnessing. And that allowed me to listen to the words. And when, so when he said, do you know what this means? I don't know if you remember the three things he said. He said, the first thing he said was, uh, I'm gonna be writing books. Now this is a welder with a ninth grade education who's worked in a pulp mill for 14 years. And these are not, as you know, they're not, they're not uh, welding books, right? And he wrote 10 of them, six of which have been published. Number two, he said, Psychiatrists and psychologists, George Pransky, Roger Mills, blah, 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 are going to seek me out and ask me to teach them what I've seen. And they eventually and their successors are going to bring millions of people from suffering, from mental distress suffering to their innate mental well-being. And change psychiatry and psychology from mental illness fields to mental health fields. Number three, he said to his wife, you and I are going to be traveling because I'm going to be asked to speak at colleges and universities, not only in Canada, but eventually in the United States and eventually in Europe. Oh, really? <laughs> He's, he knew it that moment. So, when people ask me, what are these three universal principles? They're a metaphor for what God is, what life is, and how they're connected. That's what they are to me. That he didn't initially talk about these, but he talks about how it came to him. That these, this is a metaphor. People, people sometimes act like the principles are something real. <clears throat> that there's, you're going to find them in a box somewhere. It's a metaphor of the formless. And one of the things that it's tricky to talk about, but, you know, especially nobody can throw anything at me over the Zoom, is that this, these three principles are not a religion, but they are a theology. I don't know if that, what that means to you. Does that mean anything when I say that? Well, to me, it does, but I'd be making up my version of what that means. But well, I'd be interested if you do you mind? Sure, Kate, Kate too. Yeah, because I, I think that's a that's a statement. Of, that's a powerful statement. In my mind, the theology aspect would be the source of every religion, 
what's behind all of the religions and and every religion i've ever taken any time to study is really pointing at the same thing but then the religion is the form of it and sometimes in dogma or sometimes in how to behave or how to act in order to as an example not go to hell right or go right. to heaven compared to the spiritual essence of what i what i've noticed seems to be common across all religions i've taken the time to study i don't kate did you have any comments or or anything you want to i always saw theology as the study of the divine mm -hmm. whereas religion always seems to be what um humans create around the divine okay. so what you said makes perfect sense to me so if if you take the roots of theology it means the study the study of god right what sid saw was that what's behind life is pure love and understanding pure love and understanding that's what he saw as behind life. That's what he saw God was, pure love and understanding. Well, that isn't the God that I grew up with. The God that I grew up with had a, it was judgmental and punishing. And, you know, as long as you do what I say, things will work out okay. But if you don't, and I can't tell you how many people with severe anxiety and depression I treated during my 50 years because they feared a vengeful God. Mm. A God who was willing to do something that no parent would ever do to their children, no matter what their children had done. <laughs> so this is a whole new, people don't talk about that, but this is a whole new view of what's behind life, as you said, when that pure love and understanding is what's behind life. And, and that, that then is our default setting as human beings, as manifestations of this divine energy into form, our basis, and Sid even says that very early on in The Missing Link, he said, when, we, when our consciousness descends, which is the only way you can do that by, is by paying attention to misguided personal thoughts, right? We lose this place, state of love and understanding, right? Oh, well, then that must be the default setting, right? And we, we end up feeling isolation and lostness and emptiness. And then when we regain our level of consciousness, which was mean we, we, let, we get present in our life and our thoughts, our attention to our, to our personal thinking lessons, the cork does not need direct, a GPS to get back to the surface we regain a state of love and understanding. So to me, the principles, universal mind is the intelligent energy of all things, but it's totally benevolent and it's totally beneficent. And that's really different. It's a really different theology. There is no, you know, I don't, have you read Eben Alexander's uh, Proof of Heaven? Mm -hmm. He's an M MD. He was a, a neurosurgeon. He adopted uh, to a man who was a famous neurosurgeon in World War II. But that was one of the first messages that he got was you are you can do no wrong. You're loved unconditionally. And and that's a and I ask I don't ask people to believe that. I just say you're like, you know, if you can look in this direction. Now, I make this argument, if, if you will, uh, if I were to a judge. I'd say, Your Honor, I said, I, I to come to the court and I want to know that this is not an, out, an outlandish statement. There, there is an organization in all 195 countries that is totally based on unconditional love. And somebody will say, well, really? And I say, oh, yeah. yeah. They say, somebody always asks, well, what's the name of that organization? And I say, it's called grandparenting. <laughs> And the reason is because love, as Sid points out, love is a neutral state. It's a lack of judgment. It's a lack of fear. Those that have said love is letting go of fear, 
you can't have insecurity or ego investment unless you're unless you have fear. It's impossible. Because without fear, all there is is love. And the only thing that keeps parents from living in that state on a routine basis, they go in and out of it, is because they are much more than grandparents get caught up in fear of how their kids are going to turn out, what people are going to think of them, you know, how they're going to judge them as people <laughs> and all this stuff. Does that does that resonate? Yeah. Okay, so 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 universal mind is the intelligent energy of all things. It's the same thing. I have a a lemon tree in my backyard, and I tell people, you know, the lemon tree and I are very similar in some ways because we're both manifestations of the same energy in a form. We're both divine with divine. Uh, intelligent energy in a form, okay? And my lemon tree is conscious or it wouldn't be able to continue to do what it does. And it's creative. If the weather changes, it makes some adjustments. It's, in, there's some, there, it's a manifestation. Now, I'm a bit more mobile than the lemon tree is still at this point. I still take a bike ride and walk around the block. Um, and the other difference between the lemon tree and I is that I can, too, too, I can be aware. I'm a spectator, as Sid says in The Missing Link, both a spectator and a participant in this spiritual theater called life. The lemon tree is a participant in this spiritual theater called life. It's formless energy that is take a divine energy that is taken on a form. David Boehm, Hawkins, everyone says there is no nothing but whatever you want to call it. Everything in existence is the same energy in a different disguise, either formless or form. The other thing is, I don't think the lemon tree can decide to listen to its own personal thinking and say, you know, seven years in a row, I've been making these damn lemons. I've been watching these humans, they get a damn sabbatical. No lemons this year. Or I've watched the neighbor. He give, is given he able to give away his oranges really easy. I can see that Bill's having a hell of a time giving away orange uh, my lemons. I think I'm going to make oranges this year. Eh, not able to do. I can do that, though. And for 41 years, because I did not know what my true nature was when, as you talked about, I didn't know that my true nature was divine intelligence in a form. So I listened to my personal thinking, use of mind, even when it was took me away from love and understanding. And even when it caused me considerable pain. I don't think the lemon tree has that choice. Mm. One of my favorite examples of that is if you take a bed of flowers and you cover them over on three sides and even on top and leave one end open to the sun what 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 happens on that one end they start bending towards the sun not only so they can get more light but so the ones behind them can get more light all of the flowers bend towards the light even the teenage flowers supposed to be a joke guys the teenage flowers don't say make me i'm not bending toward your damn sun no <laughs> even the teenage flowers bend to the sun now people people sometimes think that them i know there's even a book written where it says your personal mind or your intellect is the like the roommate that you can't evict that's not, Sid makes that very clear. It's the intellect is an incredible gift, incredible gift. That's why we don't have to learn how to brush our teeth every morning. We don't have to learn how to drive a car every time we get in it. That's how each of you have, have a body of knowledge about things that you're really interested in and that you're good at and it helps you serve people. If I go to a doctor, I want him to have a, him or her 
have a lot of medical knowledge stored. Now I want him to be in a, him or her to be in a lighthearted, loving state of mind so they can use that knowledge along with wisdom, right? But I want, there's nothing, it's a beautiful gift, but we can, we can innocently, if we don't, for 41 years of my life, I did not know that there was any resource available to me to deal with the unknown other than analysis. And I've got, I figure this out. So I spent my life trying to figure things out. And sometimes I was able to at least survive and figure things out. One of my favorite stories is, is the, um, I always block on his name, the Jewish uh, man that made, makes so many movies and starred in many of them. He, he had a movie called Sleeper. You know what I'm talking about? Woody Allen. 30, Woody Allen, yeah. Woody Allen had a movie many years ago. You've probably never seen it, oh, Kate, seen but yeah. you've seen it, yeah. And he's asleep for 25 years. Have you ever have you ever heard me tell this story, Kate? <laughs> so Woody Allen wakes up after he's been asleep for 25 years and he realizes it. Do you do you remember what he said when he said 25 years? Hell, I could have been halfway through my analysis. If analytical thinking is going to give you the answer, you're going to have it within two or three minutes. If you're not on the way to it in two to three minutes, really on the way to it, you're not going to be on the way to it in 30 to 40 years. I love Einstein's quote about that because Einstein knew about the divine mind. He might've called it, he calls it different things, but he said, I think something 99 times and I get nothing. Do you know this quote? So I stop thinking. Now, what he means is I stop listening to my personal mind. So I stop thinking and swim in silence and the truth comes to me. So are you curious of the first four lessons of the first, for first graders, one through four? Yeah. So just before, for, for you listening out there, just before we started recording, Bill was talking about lessons that, well, you tell the story. Well, Listen. there, I want to, and I want to do due diligence that, that, you know, Sid always said, that the real change is going to occur because we're going to teach children. Children are going to be taught this when they're young. And right now they're in England, there's iHeart, uh, uh, Terry Rubenstein. There's Annie Poole. I don't know if you know Annie. She's got programs throughout, that are in some school systems there in England. In the United States, there's the spark, the spark inside. And, and there's also in the, as a combination of, of uh, Krista Campbell from the UK, who she and her husband, Bob, uh, met Sid like 18 months after he had his experience in 1975. And Kathy Marshall Emerson, who's at the University of Minnesota and has been the director of the National Institute of Resilience for I think almost 30 years. Kathy, both of those people are good friends. But so Kathy and Krista went together and I'm just most familiar. I, I keep saying that I'll familiarize myself but I haven't gotten to it with the other three programs. So they have a program, a teacher's manual and a student manual for grades one through four, five through nine, five through eight and nine through 12. So I usually have it right here but I'm, I'm good enough that I can uh, I can do it without it. I'm, and just two or three lines I'm going to do. And pretend like, Kate, you and I and Wynn are first graders. And, and we each lesson is a whole week. They tell us on the first day. And then for the rest of the week, we, we do um, readings and we do stories and we do play acting to really get the, the lesson. So the first lesson, the teacher comes in. This is first grade. And I tell people, if, I, if these would have been my first four weeks of first grade, 
my life would have been a lot gentler. And the people who lived around me's lives would have been a lot gentler. <laughs> anyway, so the first lesson, the teacher comes in and says, we're first this week, we're going to learn that you have a guide inside. In fact, everybody has a guide inside and you can trust that guide. You can tell it by the feeling that comes with it when you're listening to it. So we go the whole week, learn about the guide inside. Lesson week two, teacher says, last week we learned about the guide inside. Was that exciting? Yeah, it was. It's, I've even seen how it works with mom and dad and my little brother. And well, this week we're gonna learn that your thoughts create your feelings. All your feelings are created by your thinking. Wow. I can't tell you how many times I've watched movies where the psychiatrist says, or the psychologist says, and how did that make you feel? The person, <laughs> oh, and how did that make you feel, right? No one ever told me in 26 years of education, including a five-year residency, that my thoughts created my feelings. I thought it was what that person over there just said or did, or what just happened in my life. Your thoughts create your feelings. All your feelings come from your thinking. Wow. This is something wild. If it's coming from me, maybe, oh, wow. I thought it came from things that I had no control over. Number three, happiness is inside of you. You'll get cloudy thoughts come by that, that block the sun. But eventually, even if you have two or three days of cloudiness, the clouds will pass if you leave them alone and the sun's out again. Same way with your mental well-being. And of course, the first one of my favorite books is a, a book, Kate, called Flying Without Wings by a man named Arnold Bicer, if you can write the name down. B-E-I-S-S-E-R-M-D. Because Arnold Bicer, you would think, would be the exception to this rule. Because Arnold Bicer in 1952 finished his medical school, finished his internship, and was uh, recruited, was uh, what do you call it? He had to go into the war, uh, uh, again, in the Korean War. But he had six weeks. He'd been a good tennis player. And so he uh, entered the National Amateur Tennis Championship in 1952, and he won it. And then he was off to Texas, driving to his assigned hospital. He started feeling really badly. And so 200 miles before he got to his hospital, he saw a Navy hospital. He pulled in and he said, I don't feel good. I know this is not my hospital. I don't, he woke up quadriplegic from polio about six months before the polio vaccine was discovered. He was quadriplegic the rest of his life, meaning he could move nothing but his head. If you want to be moved by something or you want people to be moved by that the happiness is inside of you, there's a YouTube uh, interview of him where a woman interviews him on living with disability. He later became a psychiatrist at UCLA. He was a consultant to the commissioner of baseball in the United States. And if you listen to this interview, I had to listen to it five minutes at a time. It was, I was so moved of the 25 minutes. It took me about five times. So the third lesson, happiness is, and he talks about in his little book, it's a little thin book, Flying Without Wings, he talks about how he was so distraught and so despair. You can't even kill yourself when you're quadriplegic, right? And then he suddenly had this, his mind quieted, his personal mind quieted down enough. He suddenly saw, oh my gosh, it's inside of me. It's inside of me. Wow. <laughs> wow right? Wow. And, and um, anyway, uh, you can, he had been married for 35 years at the time of this right, book writing. 
he died in, uh, in uh, oh in the nineties, I think, and or maybe it, it, it sometime later. But it's very moving. Fourth lesson. Fourth lesson. I tell people when, as I said earlier, uh, this is the fourth lesson for first graders. I've been a student of these principles for thirty-eight and a half years. On my good day, I'm a uh, B minus B maybe. Right now, I'm probably a C plus because I've been going too fast. And on a on my bad days, I'm a D plus. People say, "What's the fourth lesson for first graders?" I can realize that my thinking is fast and furious. And I can get present and notice that it becomes calm and curious. Very simple. I realize that I'm thinking fast and furious and I can get present and effortlessly my thinking becomes calm and curious. If all the adults in the world learned those first four lessons, not intellectually, but experienced <laughs> the truth of those first four lessons, there's no doubt in my mind that the world would change dramatically within 30 days. Anyway, I can stop there and take your thoughts or comments or questions. So the three principles are, you know, universal mind, the intelligent energy of all things, universal consciousness. We get, we get to use our personal gift of consciousness, personal use of mind. There's only one mind. There's the universal mind or the mind of God or whatever you want to call it. And then there's universal thought, which is another way of talking about universal mind. There's really only one that, that is the creative force in the universe. The universe is intelligent, it's conscious, it's creative. Mind, consciousness, it's not complicated. Like Sid says, when the answer is complicated, it's the intellect. When the answer is simple, it's the spirit. I don't know if the two of you have read um, Robert Sapolsky's Behave. He also was the one that wrote Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. He's a Stanford professor who's on NPR a lot. He's internationally known. If you go, if you go on YouTube, you'll see him with his big beard and his blue jeans and a typical Stanford professor, right? in his long hair. But after 670 pages, actually this is one of the, one of the things that I'm going to, um, that I made slides on this morning. Uh, do we have three more minutes or do I have five Okay. He says after 670 pages, this is one of the, probably one of the top researchers in the entire world, scientific researchers. But without understanding universal principles, Life is really confusing. I recently read, have you read Humankind? It's by Bregan from, uh, it's a more positive. He tries, he, but then he, he comes up against, he tries to show that there's, people are inherently good, right? And then there's Sapiens by Yuval Harry, right? And his is kind of a more negative, right? Here's what, here's what, Here's what um, Sapolsky says, and after 670 pages, it is worth re reviewing two final points. As a single most important of them, virtually every scientific fact presented in this book concerns the average of what is being measured. There's always variation. I realized that, that I suddenly reflecting this, I discovered this book contains variations of on the average, typically, usually, often, tend to, generally, more than 500 times. There are individual differences and interesting exceptions everywhere you look in science. But if you don't understand the principles, you don't know why there's exceptions. A lot of the things that are exceptions are really the rule in action. 
Viktor Frankl was an exception. Gandhi was an exception, or was he an exception? Or Pooh Bear? Huh? Maybe they're not exceptions. Maybe they're the rule in action. So here's what he says at the end, two last thoughts. If you had to boil this book down to a single phrase, it would be, it's complicated. Sounds, what did Sid say about complicated? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, nothing seems to cause anything. Instead, everything just modulates something else. Scientists keep saying we used to think X, but now we realize that. Fixing one thing often messes up 10 more as the law of unintended consequences reigns. On any big important issue, it seems like 51% of the scientific studies conclude one thing and 49% conclude the opposite and so on. Eventually it can seem hopeless that you can actually fix something, can make things better. But we have no choice but to try, right? And then he says, finally, you don't have to choose between being scientific and being compassionate. And I would add, or looking at the spiritual side of life. He rejected his Judaism and he threw out the baby with the bathwater. He won't even look presently in the, in the spiritual direction because he can't grab it. He can't make, even though what he is grabbing is giving him these results. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. He and I were going to have, uh, we're going to have dinner in Washington, D.C. one time about 10 years ago at a conference where the Dalai Lama was there with Sapolsky and with a whole bunch of people. And it was, it was Washington, George Washington University in Georgetown. And he and I were going to have dinner. We had communicated back. This is 10 years ago when I was at. And then he came up to me afterwards um, and he says, Bill, he said, my daughter's soccer team upset the number one team and they're playing for the championship tomorrow morning at 11. So I'm taking the red, I have to take the red eye back. To, and we never, we never got back. You still could. Still could, I'm reaching out to him. Do you, are you familiar with the article that uh, Tom Kelly, Jack Pransky, Judy Sedgman and I collaborated on for 22 months and just got published in July, about a 13-page article. I was aware of its coming. I have to confess I've not read it. But no, but but would you do you have do you guys have it? Uh, if you don't, I'll send it to you. Please send and it. I'll send you I'll send you the article that that uh, inspired me to call Tom in September of 2018. Caspi and Moffat, Caspi is from Duke, Moffat, Terry Moffat is from King's College in London, 131 scientific references. Sid had been saying for 40 years, there is one mental illness, one cause of all, I'd been saying it, You've, there's, a whole, there's a whole set of videos of one cause, one cure, hope for anxiety disorders, hope for, you know, okay. So here's two science, scientists, established um, scientists who are really well known in the American Journal of Psychiatry, 13 page article that says all for one and one for all, all mental illness in one dimension. I read it, I called Tom the next morning. I said, Tom, we have to, finally somebody is pointing in this direction. We've got to respond to this. And over the next 22 months, Tom, Jack Bransky, Judy Sedgman, and I worked on this and then got it uh, published. So our article is the answer to that article of what they call factor P because they, they, they couldn't nail down what factor P was. And we then uh, clearly elucidate what factor P is. And then the, the antidote and the cure is factor U, which is an understanding of these three universal spiritual principles of mind, thought, and consciousness. But if, if you want, do I, Kate, do I have your email? I know I've got wins, but 
I don't know if I definitely reach out and send that to you. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, so I'll send you those two articles if you want. And it, you'd, I think it'd be worth you to, oh, you said you already have my guide inside uh, to look at the website there because uh, that's what's, you know, that's what's eventually going to change is the children is to reach the children. And those are being translated into, into Hebrew, into Italian, into Spanish, into Danish, uh, you know, they're, 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 the children are going to start being affected by this, especially during the pandemic. A lot of parents have gotten those manuals because they had time with their kids, you know. So, so when, you, uh, <clears throat> when you find yourself getting a D plus in your lesson number four, Mm -hmm. is it just noticing for you noticing is the first step um it, it, it let me see if if i'm if you're if i'm hearing the question the question that i hear is bill when you're caught in the midst of a thought thunderstorm what do you mm -hmm. do is that is that kind of the question a little bit. It's less. It's less about doing, and it's more of. Does it just come down to noticing for you? Well, does it for you? Does noticing enough? I think if you're asking the question, it's probably not always enough. And that's. Perfect. I guess for me, it probably is. It is enough. Okay. Most of the time. And if I'm trying to find um, something to do, then I'm, I'm typically headed back into my intellect for me. Well, I would say for me, it's noticing and it's noticing sooner and sooner. Mm. And, and once I notice, it's very simple. It sounds, but in, in doing, all I do is I do, somebody asked me this recently on a podcast and what came to me, I'm sure both of you have had the experience where your mouth starts moving and you're not sure what it's going to say. And that's what happened. Somebody said, what do you do when you're in the midst of a thought thunderstorm? And I just, just went to quiet, that place that Einstein talks about. And what came out of my mouth was, I do the best that I can to be where I am. So I'm not trying to do anything with my thinking, but I do, if you will, take my presence to now, to where I am right now. I do the best that I can to be where I am. And in the state of presence, your mind can't not keep going fast. It effortlessly slows down. My favorite story about this, you know, supposedly I've never been able to find it anywhere. When, if you find it, you tell me, or if you know of it, you know, people say that Sid says, if people were just not afraid of their experience, the world would change. Well, my friend, Ophir, oh, by the way, there, did you know that there's a free course that we put together, I and four others, I contacted four people, and it's called The Missing Link for Veterans. But people have told, and it's on YouTube, and it's on my uh, website, and it's me and a veteran, a Marine veteran from the United States, a, a retired a Marine major, David Hill from the UK, you know, David, and, and Ofer Meyer from Israel. Ofer Meyer, Katie, do you know him at all? Mm -mm. Ofer mm -hmm. Meyer, I've known since 2008. Um, we started with 27 Israeli combat injured soldiers. They have a big building now. They have over 1,100 members of Brothers for Life, Israeli soldier, combat soldiers. So he was in a company of 10 in a special Israeli force in Lebanon too. They got hit with a rocket attack. He was the medic. His eyeball is hanging out by the cord. He loses his eye, but he, 
he's ministering to one after another. All nine of in his company died, many of them in his arms. Goes into a deep depression. He now is a psychologist and, and uh, is in a two-year child and adolescent um, fellowship uh, in psychology. So he and I, I contacted David and, and Brad Gallup and Ophir and Judy Sedgman, who was my colleague at WVU, and we, we take one page at a time, all 142 pages, and after each of the 142 pages, it's free, all five of us sometimes comment on each page, what, the, what it's meant to us, what we've seen, the queries we still have if there are some. And we do that for all 142 pages. So in the midst of filming that, one time we came, we got together every four to six weeks and we do a, a couple more 20, 20 minute, because we limited them to 25 minutes or so. Um, because we knew the attention span of people that really did have PTSD, right? But I've heard men, women, people that didn't have PTSD said, wow, this changed my life, right? So anyway, so Ophir comes to one of the things and, he's, and he tells this story that he and his uh, two buddies uh, had decided to go to Barcelona from Tel Aviv for the weekend. And they walk out of the airport and they did not know, I always kid him I said for for being soldiers you didn't do very good reconnaissance you know because they walk out into the midst of a national holiday in Spain what happens on national holidays fireworks explosions in the air the limbic system many of our thoughts a good percentage of our thoughts are not conscious but we experience the feeling. We experience the tension, the lower in the mood, the whatever. They're alarmed, they're love letters from the divine mind to let us know that we something's happened. It's time to go to quiet, time to go to presence. So suddenly that limbic says it in and it's it's very fast, but it's not real accurate. That's why a stress policeman, all too frequently, a man's trying to hand somebody, a policeman, his iPhone. And he gets three bullets, four bullets in his chest because the, the stressed out policeman sees a handgun. Okay. So O'Fair walks out, <laughs> explosions. His limbic system thinks, oh shit, it's another one of those, another rocket attack that killed everybody. His heart's suddenly going 160. <laughs> He's breathing heavily. He's sweating profusely. Now, for most people, Kate, they'd be terrified. And they try to do something with their thinking. But O'Fair, because he understands the system, he said, I didn't even have to think about it. I just sat down on the curb and, and just got present. He didn't care because he knew it was a thought-created experience. He knew it could only last up to four to five minutes unless he fed it or fought it. And so within five minutes, he said, my heart rate was normal. My breathing was normal. I was no longer perspiring. And most importantly, I felt a deep level of, of calm. Mm. And from that place, he looked up and he saw the fireworks and he said, is this cool or what? <laughs> and they did not have to take the next plane back to Tel Aviv. So to me, that's a perfect example of what understanding does. We always operate from our understanding. It doesn't matter what people tell us to do. We will do what wisdom guides us to do to the degree we know that we're guided. <laughs> and all we have to do is be present and swim in, in, in silence and just be present. I don't know if that answers your question, but to yeah. me, it's more than just noticing. Because after you notice, then you, you're going to do something. And you're going to either do battle with your thinking or try to change something, uh, try to change your experience, or you're just going to do nothing and just get present as quietly as you can and let the thought created experience run its course.
Is that helpful at all? Or yeah, for sure. Yeah, good. Any parting shots, Win? <laughs> the one thing that just struck me again, and I just love listening to you. Every time you went through those four lessons mm. for the fourth graders, every single one, I relaxed more and more. Wow, wow. In just the remembering of the truth of each of those four mm. statements mm. and those four lessons. Mm. And to me, the, the lovely thing that I remember, well, and, and really recognize in that, that would only happen in me if it was true. Mm. If each of those statements were true, then it would be possible for me to relax each time, as opposed mm -hmm. to me to get intellectually curious or inquisitive right. or argue right. or analyze. Right. Just that deep set relief in the way that you had that 300 pounds come off your chest back in April the 1st, 1983. Right. Thank you. And I, it, I make sure to tell people, listen, in the last 38 years, it hasn't been I've made stupid mistakes. <laughs> I've I've done destructive things. I've done stupid things. I've hurt relationships. You know, you, you but you know what? The direction has been the right direction. Mm -hmm. Because I realized that every moment of my life is a second chance. And like your friend George Pransky, you know, George doesn't he he doesn't see failures. I've said that at both his, his birth 70th and 75th birthday or 60th. I said, because George Pransky would be rather, he'd rather have 384 wins and 19 losses than be 17 wins and no losses. Because he would say those 19 losses were not, they were learning opportunities. And that's the way I see every time Every time I'm in emotional crisis now, I get excited because I know that, I and mean, that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Because I know that the only person that can cause me emotional pain, the only person or thing is in the same underpants that I'm in. <laughs> and the last time I looked, there's only room for me. I know that's a silly, but I'm silly. Uh, Terrific. But, but that's incredibly reassuring because it keeps me from looking out there. I know that I'm the one doing it. And why am I excited? Because Sid said there's an infinite number of doors of understanding these principles. Mm. The last time I looked in my math book, infinite is a really, really big number. So that means that I'm come up against something in my life, some challenge that my, and I use the word challenge. I, I, I encourage people not to use the word stressor because you're giving power to an inert object. Mm. It does not have the power to stress you. The only person that has the power to stress me is again in my underpants. And I know that. I know that. So, so that I'm my level of understanding is coming up against some challenge that it's not up to. And the emotional pain that I'm feeling is a love letter. It's an alarm. You don't shoot out an alarm with your AK-17 in the th movie theater because it's wrecking your uh, enjoyment of the movie. It's an alarm. It's a signal like, like it was to Ophir to simply go to quiet, go to presence. Nothing to do. There's an insight waiting for you. You're, you're getting the opportunity to go through some more of those doors, infinite number of doors of understanding. I love the Chinese. The Chinese symbol is something like this. I may have it wrong but my physician friend showed me once, and it's something like this. The symbol for crisis is two symbols in Chinese. One is danger, the other is opportunity. 
when I'm in emotional pain, I'm in crisis. I am having an opportunity to go to quiet, to go to presence, and to fall through a few more doors of understanding. Mm -hmm. Effortlessly. Because if I try to do it, the only thing I can try to do it with is my, I won't say it, fructing intellect. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make sense or resonate or? Yeah, I love that, Phil. <laughs> love that. <laughs> well, I don't know if I met expectations today, but I, you know, I just give what comes to me. <laughs> That's all we have to Phil. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, seriously. Good, good. Next time you'll have to get some contributions from your people and if to get me to talk, talk, but I'll still be glad to come back. <laughs> tell them yeah. tell them it'd be worth $25 for them to listen you know whatever <laughs> thanks for being here Bill. oh you're welcome you're welcome you're welcome you've been listening to under the noise with Wynn Morgan and Kate Roberts and today's guest Dr. Bill Pettit <laughs> thanks for joining us We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review. If you have a topic or question that you'd like us to chat about, email Wynn or Kate at win at winning.co.uk and kate at katerobertscoaching.com. Until then, enjoy what's possible under the noise.